The Retro Lounge is a look back into the archives of the Recruiters Lounge podcast with Jim Stroud and Karen Matinen. The Recruiters Lounge podcast posted weekly between the years of 2005 and 2010. With energy, wit, and opposite points of view, <laughs> Jim Stroud and Karen Madden discussed, debated, and squabbled like children over HR issues that affected the workplace and society overall for the benefit of all who would listen. This episode of the Recruiter's Lounge was originally airing, it originally aired, that's what I'm trying to say, it originally aired, uh, when did it air? February 24th, 2009, and this was the original title, The Pros and Cons of the Employee Free Choice Act. Jim Stroud and Karen Matten lead a heated debate over the Employee Free Choice Act. Listen in and find out that the more you learn about the EFCA, you either love it or you hate it. <laughs> Listen in and see what side of the debate you are on. Special thanks to our guests, Nancy Schiffer, Associate General Counsel, AFCIO, and Steve Markin, former union member with 20 years of legal experience. Oh yeah, this one was a doozy. Find out what was said right after this special message. This podcast is sponsored by Superpass, the go-to software for out-the-box content websites and mobile apps. With the Superpass platform, you can create your own branded website and native mobile apps to host your digital content, subscribers, and more. Do you have quality content that you want to share with the world in a beautiful and intuitive site? If so, then Superpass can provide the tech solution for you. Hold all your digital content in one place, your brand, your way. Check out Superpass.app. That's S-U-P-A-P-A-S-S dot app. Recruitment marketing, as compared to maybe employer branding, is all about getting your message and your story in front of the right audience. It's a lot to manage. And what Practic Talent does for our clients is we help centralize so you have one partner, one vendor to help you manage all those relationships. And not only that, we help you track the effectiveness of every media dollar you spend on hiring so that you know in real time that you're getting the greatest ROI for your marketing investment to attract great talent into your company. We help our clients with recruitment marketing in a couple ways. One is a recruitment marketing strategy. And with that, we really take the time to help you build the right strategy. And then we get mutual approval on that strategy before you spend a single dime. The other way we do this is through our agency of record service. This is a partnership with you where we're able to reach out to publishers on your behalf to negotiate better pricing, to execute on media campaigns, uh, and really act as an extension of your team. Some of the benefits that our clients have seen working with Practic Talents Recruitment Marketing Services is an overall reduction of 30% cost per applicant. That's really significant. It's showing that we're able to leverage great technology, programmatic, and we're also flexible and scalable. We're platform agnostic. We're always gonna use whatever the greatest and latest technology is, whatever the best platforms are to help create efficiencies in your media purchasing so that you're always on the cutting edge. For more information on Proactive Talent, visit them online at proactivetalent.com or click the link in the podcast description. Innovative audio on demand. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud. And this is Karen Matten, and welcome to the Recruiter's Lounge. The Recruiter's Lounge is a podcast of news 
interviews, and commentary on the recruiting industry. And it was designed with you in mind. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your time in the Recruiter's Lounge. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome Jim, to... Uh, before you start this podcast... Uh, I yes. got a question to ask you. Remember that thing you were telling me about, that thing? What thing? Uh, that we were talking about, and I was telling my friend about it. It was the one about the thing that this, that thing that you were talking you about. You can't the thing, the thing. What are you talking what about? What are you talking about on, 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 on Starbucks, that one? What I was telling you? Yeah. That my one. secret I weapon? My friend about it. Can you, can you talk about that? My secret weapon I told you not to tell anybody about? Oops. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I got it more. But come on. What, what's that thing called? Well, yeah. if you don't tell anyone, it's called Talent Hook. Yes. <gasps> Talent Hook. Hook is it's a great tool. I can search uh, 1,850 plus internet resume resources, pay boards, free boards, search engines, niche sites. Um, I can automate it. It's OFCCP compliant, too, isn't it? And it is OFCCP compliant. I don't tell people about Talent Hook because that's how I get my work done and I'm able to do other things, uh, like this podcast, for example. So don't tell people about Talent Hook. I'm trying to keep it to myself. Uh, okay. All right. Now let's start the show. Hey, Jim, wait, wait. Before we go on, because you know I told everybody already, so it might as well just. www.talenthook.com. T-A-L-E-N-T-H-O-K.com. Talent Hook. Just like it sounds. I apologize, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. On with with the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Recruiter's Lounge. I'm your host with the most, Jim Stroud, and with me, as always... My faithful companion, Karen Madden. How are you, Karen? I am doing really well today, and I'm very excited because of who we're going to be having as our guest. Oh, this is going to be a controversial one. But yes, before we get into it, let me ask you this. How have you been? I've been doing well. Um, been waiting patiently to get my business going and getting it going hardcore, but it's been slow and tedious. But other than that, I'm doing well. I know it's also you've been getting a lot of, lot of um uh, controversy, I guess would be a good word to say, around your, your Twitter feed. A lot of people have been um, sending you messages about some of the things you're posting there. And if anyone is curious about uh, the kind of stuff that Karen posts on her Twitter feed, uh, as well as mine, you can catch Karen at uh, twitter.com slash hirecentrics, that's H-I-R-E-C-N-T-R-I-X, and me at twitter.com slash Stroud. Yeah, I have been doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I guess I've been putting out stuff, information about the pro-union because there's other people out there who totally are anti-union. And so I wanted to go ahead and say, okay, I don't think anybody's taking the time, especially in the employment world, to sit down and say, let's talk to the union and ask them directly what really is the truth and what's not. That's true because when I posted – uh, I think a lot of information about EFCA on the Recruiters Lounge blog got a lot of, I don't want to say flack, but I got a lot of attention because of it. And we were talking about that, as you remember, and we said, you know what, let's just get some people together who know what they're talking about, and let's just sort of go back and forth about the pros and cons mm-hmm. about the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, one thing that I wanted to, 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 before we even begin, is I was reading some different information. I think one thing that, that you sent to me as well, was that a lot of working men and women uh, looking to get ahead economically 
uh, is thinking about uniting with different coworkers so they can better bargain for wages and benefits. Okay. And that's how the whole what the whole union thing is about. <clears throat> and I also read that, and, and I want to ask our guests about this too. I read that more than half of U.S. workers, uh, I think nearly 60 million, give or take, said they would join a union right now uh, if they could, which I thought was interesting because I, I hear conflicting reports around that. Um, but you know, enough about that. Let's, uh, if you would, Karen, introduce our guests, or actually, let's give our guests uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves. Uh, Nancy Schiffer, if you would, please. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Uh, my name is Nancy Schiffer. I'm an Associate General Counsel with the AFL-CIO. I've been here about uh, 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I worked in Detroit for a quarter of a century. I worked for the auto workers and with a private firm and with the National Labor Relations Board, and mostly what I did was help workers who wanted to have a union go through the legal process that they were had to go through in order to make that happen. Wow. We also have with us Steve. Steve, if you would, uh, introduce yourself as well. Yeah, hi. My name is Steve Markin. I've been an attorney forever, and uh, during that during forever, I've represented both uh, uh, employers and uh, unionizers. Let me start off with the first question, if I would, and then we're going to just sort of banter back and forth in there. Uh, Nancy, would you agree with the statement that the system, the current system for forming unions and bargaining is broken? Yes. The current system is broken. I've been working with the system, as I said, for, for many, many years. And at some point, it became apparent to me that even though the law, the National Labor Relations Act, says that workers have a right to form a union and to bargain with their employers, in practice, they don't have that right. Hmm. Okay. Steve, would you say it's broken as well? Oh, absolutely. Well, I would say that it's imperfect. I would say that it's uh, certainly not uh, uh I hate to quote Fox, fair and balanced. <laughs> well, we, we know from studies that in a quarter of of uh, workplaces where workers want to have a union, that in during that effort, at least one worker will be fired. Um, most employers hire anti-union consultants, uh, union busters. We know that, that employers, uh, management firms now list quote-unquote, union avoidance as a practice area like they would bankruptcy or or mergers. Um, most employers force workers, their mandatory meetings, closed-door meetings, to talk against the unions. And mm -hmm. so this atmosphere of coercion and intimidation exists in the workplace when workers try to have a union. Well, I came across some, some research in regards, I mean, they were talking about employees, like 25% of employees were illegally fired when providing a labor union campaign. Yes. Yes, that, that those are those are the numbers that I'm talking about. Um in a, in a quarter of those campaigns a worker is fired. Um and in half of the campaigns companies tell the workers that they're going to close the plant and everyone will lose their job if the union is successful and, and and workers choose the union in the election. Nancy, I don't have these statistics, but let's accept for the purposes of our discussion that the system is indeed broken and that as it stands now, it's slanted towards the employer or anti-unionizing uh, forces. All right. Taking that, though, do you really think that uh, the radical solution that's provided by the uh, EFCA is the way to go? Isn't I'm glad you asked the question exactly that way. <laughs> <laughs> because because the bill does three things. It improves the remedies. 
and there has been very little controversy about the enhancing the remedies. The NLRB really doesn't have very much in the way of remedies. It was a very early employment statute, and and the, and the remedies are very weak. That has not been controversial. Everyone seems to accept that. Another part is to provide a process for workers to get a contract when they form a union. Forty-four uh, percent of workers don't get a contract when they form their union. And, but but the third part is to have a process that employees can get a union th through what we call majority sign-up or card check. And the the point that I want to make is that this is not a new process. The Employee Free Choice Act does not create the majority sign-up process. It's always been in existence. It's been ex in existence since the National Labor Relations Act was enacted in 1935. It's been endorsed by Congress and by the Supreme Court. There are huge employers that use this system uh, with their workers, uh, AT&T, Harley-Davidson, Kaiser Permanente, uh, workers in uh, 15 states have some sort of uh, public sector workers, some sort of majority sign-up process for uh, what, choosing whether to have a union. But what has what has happened in our federal labor law is that although workers could form their union through either election or majority sign-up, the employer can refuse to allow them to have a union if they try to get it through majority sign-up. So the employer, the companies, have always have had this authority to choose whether workers can use one process or another. And what the Employee Free Choice Act does, not create majority sign-up, what it says is that if workers choose to form their union through this process, they get their union. The employer can't veto it. That's a little bit disingenuous, I think, Nancy. And I'll tell you why. Because in the past, as you said, the employer had the option of choosing card sign-up or secret ballot. I don't know of any case in which the employer signed uh, secret ballot uh, or card check, I should say, not secret. There's nothing secret about it. Uh, card check, unless you already had the cards, of course. Uh, but the huge difference is when an employee is given today a card check, it's usually for the purpose, almost always for the purpose of saying, okay, will we have the right to have a secret ballot to go forward and get and have an election uh, for a union? That's a, and people will sign that. I mean, a couple of friends show up and give them some beer and a pizza. They have a meeting, and, you know, he signed this thing, and the guy says, hey, there's no lasting repercussion, and union's not a bad idea. Let's have a discussion. I'll sign it. That's a long, long way uh, from agreeing to unionize on the basis of a card check without a secret ballot. Most workers today form their union through majority sign-up, not through the election process. So it's not true that employers always deny that. I, I, as, I just, as I just said, uh, Kaiser Permanente, AT&T, Harley-Davidson, other large employers use the majority sign-up process. Well, if that's true, then why why are you fixing something that's not broken? Because because right now employers get to decide. Yeah. I mean, okay, can I interject there? Because I think, okay, I'm on the other side, too, on the offense on this one. I've seen as a recruiter where companies are, like, let's take um, Walmart or even Starbucks, for example, who will go ahead and make sure that they can do whatever they can to prevent that union from being formed. And the re Yeah, the reasons that the employers like the election process is that it's such an employer-controlled process. Can I ask something else on this, too? I look at it almost like a whistleblower kind of protection. It's like, okay, if I decide to come out and if I'm showing my name and who I am, and I'm starting that process. If something, therefore, if I get fired or something bad happens to me in this process, 
it's almost like I have that protection. Is that not true? If something bad happens now, are you protected when yeah. you go through the election process? Yes. In theory, you're protected. In theory. In in theory, it's illegal for an employer to fire you because you want to have a union. Um, but it happens a lot, and the reason it happens a lot is because because the remedies are so bad, and it takes so long to get the remedy. Most workers never go back to that workplace. The average back pay is between $2,500 and $3,500. It's just not a deterrent. And the employer can destroy the campaign that way. Workers workers are afraid. They see what happens to the union supporters, and, and they don't want that to happen to them. And and so and so it's cost-effective. The Human, uh, 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 Human Rights Watch did a report in 2000 where they did detailed case studies of organizing campaigns, and they concluded that employers violate the act with impunity uh, because because it's, it, it, they view the remedies as a cost of doing business. Those are their words. Right, but as you said, that's why the uh, that part of the act is not controversial. I mean, I, I don't know many people who would disagree that the uh, present sanctions are uh, just not working. I mean, they just haven't been updated forever, and and they they are a cost of doing business, which is which is uh, uh, gratefully uh, endured by uh, abusive uh, companies like uh, Walmart. Did I say that? And uh, I mean that will continue unless it's addressed. And I I don't know if, as I said, and as you as you said, that's really not the controversial part of the act. So let's address the two other parts. You said something before regarding the uh, the card check and how many elections today are by card check. I would posit that um, if that is true, I don't have the statistics, it obviously is true in places where the election is not controversial. But in the places where the election is controversial, I would argue that a secret ballot is required and that further protections need to be given to the union organizers, part and parcel of the sanctions and perhaps more. Perhaps we could fiddle around with a shortening of time. Perhaps we could ban or limit, uh, you know, the employee-mandated meetings. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, we also have uh, uh, the union's uh, ability to abuse uh, people who would oppose. So I think, you know, it's all balanced out, and we have to have a better regulated, better designed process. It's not balanced out. The employer violations, if you look at NLRA statistics that they report in their annual reports, the employer violations run about 12, 13 to 1 against union violations against workers. Um, and the election process itself creates, incentivizes for the employer to create a very confrontational, very intensively coercive atmosphere. I, 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 it, it's hard to describe to people who have not been through it, but I, I spent years meeting with workers and describing to them uh, what the process will be like. The workers contacted Nancy, the union. We've set up a meeting. Nancy, I agree with you. Uh, that's not the import of what I said. I, when I said that it's balanced, I meant it's balanced in uh, in the ability for, uh, for each uh, side, the union or the employer, uh, to do things which shouldn't be done to try to over-influence uh, the, the parties. And right now, sure, it's the, uh, it's the employer who's abusive because the system's designed to allow not you know, there is a, we were talking about this the other day, too. I mean, I don't know. I mean, okay, I think today there's this image that the union has. People have an image that the union is like the good old day back, you know, where they'll come in and break people's bones if they didn't agree with them or something like that. But i got to tell you, 
what I've seen of our big company today, they're worse. Their 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 intimidation and their ability to do these strong arm tactics. I look at them as how they how the the John you know Gotti days. They to me they are just as bad as those days are. You know what I mean? Am I saying that correctly? The union the the employer has the the power over yeah. the workers. The union doesn't have power over the workers. Um, I've been involved in campaigns where. Uh, workers were followed into the bathroom to see who they talked to. Workers were followed outside the plant, uh, outside the workplace, into a restaurant to see who they talked to. When they went on their lunch break off the employer property, they were uh, um, uh, filmed with video cameras, uh, surveillance cameras. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very intensive, very intensive period. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story. A, a, a worker had had. Um, indicated that her uh, supervisor told her because she was wearing a union button that if she didn't take off the button, she she would get fired. And I was talking to her on the phone because I wanted her to give that information to the National Labor Relations Act so that we could do something about it. And she's, she, I explained that to her. She's crying on the phone. She has a 10-year-old son. He's asthmatic. She's afraid she will lose her job. And if she does, she can't get her her son the medications. I know if she loses her job, it's going to take me a long time to get her back to work. And I can't say, oh, don't worry about that. That won't be a problem because it will be a problem. Yeah, because she will not get anybody to want to hire her because I've seen that happen where companies will blacklist her. Yeah, but isn't the answer to that uh, better uh, sanctions and uh, better enforcement? Why throw out the secret ballot? Can't we regulate it? We're not throwing. Yeah, we're not throwing out the secret ballot. Number one, but let me ask you this: Why do you think the secret ballot election process is superior to workers getting together? Uh, workers get together at somebody's house. They want to have a union. They sign cards saying we want to have a union. Suppose all the workers sign cards. They go to their employer the next day. They say we all want to have a union. The employer said, I don't care. You have to go through the election process. Why should they have to do that? I can tell you, uh, I could tell you a couple of stories, which, uh, well, some of them I couldn't tell you, uh, which I've uh, I've seen firsthand about unions and and how they act in the uh, construction industry in New York, and they're not pretty either. And uh, while I'm far from anti-union, I'm far from some of the antics that these that I've seen unions play in New York. And when when I, a union, no, let me answer your question, please. I'm sorry. Uh, let me just say that. The people are people. There are abusive people who are unionizers and abusive people who are employers. And if you think for one second that you're not going to find instances of abuse where the unions know who they have to target to get uh, the cards uh, signed, uh, then I think you're being disingenuous to to suggest that. I mean, because you know that there are occasions where the unions have been abusive uh, to get things done. And I could I know of stories with baseball bats through windshields, and I know of stories where uh, people have died and buildings have blown up to get workers to sign cards. Well, for, they were in they were they were they were in labor disputes, right? What's that? They were in labor disputes. Uh, they were in uh, some some of them were jurisdictional disputes. Yeah, some of them were labor disputes. Yeah. But if people are prone to violence, I don't see why they're not prone to uh, uh, to violence to unionize. He is from New York, by the way. Yeah, I, 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 I take exception to this to this general notion that union uh, that union representatives are prone to violence. I don't think I am. I didn't am. say that. I didn't say that. Let me be clear. I said 
I've seen some instances of that. I've also worked with some unions that have been, you know, very businesslike and very professional. Well, that was I, like... I, I, just, I don't like labeling people, and I don't think you put all unions in a box as good and all employers in a box as bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, appreciate, okay. I appreciate that. But if you look at the numbers from the NLRB's annual reports, the numbers are on the employer's side in terms of coercion and intimidation. Let me ask a question. Well, I you know, if I had a guy on from the, uh, I'm sorry, Jim, from the other side, he'd tell me the, uh, the exact opposite. Not on the numbers. I mean, the numbers are there. Well, we, well, I've spoken to somebody who gave me just the opposite. Depends on who you get the numbers from. Yeah. I mean, but, okay, okay. I'm going to say this on being the person on, and I'm, I'm Jim and you're next, I'm sorry, but I'm being a person who is as a recruiter. I've seen the people getting fired, and they're coming to me because they lost their job. I get the calls from the employees, and they'll say, don't send me anyone union. I don't care. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. I've got to send you the best qualified candidate. Sorry, Charlie, okay? You do whatever you want with the re- resume, but I've got to abide by the law. But they're like, well, well, I will work with you. I mean, I've seen it on both sides, which is why I come back and I look at Walmart and I look at Starbucks and I say, Jim, and, and as well as uh, Steve, back to what you were saying, yeah, I've heard the strong-arming tactics of the, of the union, but today I see that the, the strong-arm fear-mongering is just as bad, if not worse, from the employer side. I think there is a balance. I think there is. And, Jim, you had a question. I apologize. Yeah, no problem. I, 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 I like the direction that, that we're going in here. I have a question on the side of, on, on the side of, of big business, I guess, as sort of a devil's advocate um, in that regard. I've, I can certainly empathize with the workers who are being uh, abused by big businesses who don't want unions and so forth. And uh, I'm totally empathetic to some of the extreme examples that, that I've been hearing on the podcast so far. Um, one question I have is that not taking into account the big business, but taking into account maybe medium size or small business who simply say, um, I am going to treat my workers fairly. Um, I don't think we need a union because I'm going to treat you fairly anyway. Um, but if you do decide to do, have a union, and that's certainly your right, and I, and I wouldn't stand in your way, but if you uh, do have a union, then I won't be able to afford to hire as many people. So you can have a union here, but I want to be able to hire as many people because of the related costs. So the question I would, I'm asking the workers from the standpoint of the business is that have your union, and that's fine and dandy, but because of the related costs, I can only hire, uh, I don't know, 10 instead of the 20 that I was going to hire before. And otherwise, you know, you cannot have it, and I could hire more people, and will treat you right, and if you don't want to work here, don't. But, I, you know, I, I can give you that because I want a good reputation in the business place as well. And, I'm, again, I'm not a huge Walmart or some other big company. I'm sort of a medium guy, medium-sized company, just trying to do the right thing. How would you, how would you respond to, to a business like that, uh, Nancy and then Steve? Well, that, that assumes that unions are, are out to uh, employ as few people as possible and to hurt employers economically. Um, That's a fear a lot of companies have, though, right? Yeah, yes, I I think that is, and um, I'll, I'll I'll give you a, a, a situation where I was involved in it was a big at that time. Think think back to graduate. It was a plastics place, okay. and and um, and it was owned by two brothers, and they they fought the union everything illegal, and. And finally, those workers, mostly younger women, got their union. But on the way to doing that, the board 
had to order them to bargain with the union. And once they sat down at the bargaining table of the union, they found out that they developed a very cooperative relationship, and they had a very good relationship from then on. They had this notion of what the union would do. They had this notion that they would be forced to pay people more. They had this notion of things that would be be forced on them. And none of that happened, and they developed a very cooperative relationship. And, in fact, if you if you, if you you look at uh, reports, um, workplaces that have the best productivity, workplaces that develop good uh, attendance, are unionized workplaces because they have a cooperative relationship. And for many workers that I met with, what they really wanted from their employer was this cooperative relationship that they could have by having an organized workforce. So in your estimation, you would say when the word union is brought up around maybe medium-sized businesses, first there's a stigma that has to be addressed. But once that stigma has been addressed, then it's sort of a simpatico typically between unions and... and the I think it works out that way. There's a book book called There Be No Dragons, and it could have been written about unions. <laughs> mm. Okay, okay. Um, I think Karen had a question first, and I'm going to ask Steve to, to rebuttal. Karen? Karen, did you have a question? Okay, maybe not. Steve, do you have a question? Oh, Karen. <laughs> well, I would re- wouldn't really rebut. I would say that, uh, yeah, there is a great... My... Oh, excuse me, guys. I'm sorry. I was on mute. Can I please interject here a second? Sure. Thank <laughs> you. Ahead. I was on mute by accident. Okay, I thought I was talking. Um, one like of the things that we noticed no. in the past eight years was that the, the wages were decri- decreased seven times. You've got companies like Walmart who are so anti the union, as is Starbucks, because they underpay their employees. They right now have more federal lawsuits going on in so many states as well as class actions in regards to how they pay their employees that they don't pay overtime. There are more FSLA violations that are just kind of like unmentionable. So when you look at companies who are anti-union, then you look and follow the trail of lawsuits that follow them, it's easy to understand why they are anti-union. I mean, right now, statistics have proven that the union numbers have fallen tremendously in the last 10 to 15 years. In that time frame, we've seen wages decline, and we've seen misclassification go out through the roof. So that was my response. And, Steve, I'm sorry. Hold on, Steve. Let me talk to Karen real quick. Now, you talk about misclassification, which is a totally different issue. Uh, You also talk about wages being declined. Wage issues. Right. Now, as far as the wages uh, declining, is that in um, in in response to labor costs that they now have to deal with because of the union? Jim, for until about 15 years ago, every time that every year we'd have a wage increase based upon inflation. And then for some reason or the other, we decided to get rid of that. That was also around the same time frame that big business started getting more greedy, and that was when the employer, our employees started to suffer. And what we've also seen is how the middle class has decreased tremendously, and you've seen the rich get richer, literally, and the poor get poorer. And actually, so has the middle class. Um, and then what you also saw was the disruption of business, too. I call this Reaganomics in reverse where big business has managed to go ahead and cheapen themselves out of jobs and labor and even out of company. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of, of people unionizing more so now, or at least wanting to unionize. At today. A, at, at, today, at a point where companies 
everybody's feeling the pinch. So companies, whether they, it's, whether it's a, a, just a matter of a, some kind of stigma or if it's just a justifiable cost and saying, hey, I, I want to hire more people and I want to do this, but I, I just will not be able to afford it. And if that's the case, if I'm made to do this, I'll go out of business. I don't think anybody goes out of business. What ends up happening is when you have more people making more money, people can start buying products. There's going to be like a step backwards to go step forward. You take one step backwards to go six steps forward. But it seems like it's a catch-22 because if I'm paying more money out to, employ, to for a better wage for the pack of the workers, mm-hmm. that's into my profit margin, so I'm not able to expand and do other things. People, so if, you, I if expand, a company starts then more people will be able to buy your product. So that's what happened is that when all these companies were decreasing wages across the board in America, because you've got to remember that the CEO of one company is sitting on the board of another CEO of, an, of another company. They all teach each other how to do stupid things, okay? And they kept patting their pockets and kept taking money away from the worker. Well, problem is, is that when you can't buy workers buying, being able to afford to buy the product, that's what ends up happening. You get people can't afford to buy their, pay their houses and their bills, so now we go into a recession like we have today. Our misery index has gone through the roof, and we've seen the misery index increase. I'm sorry, I'm ranting. Steve has a question on the response, and I'm sorry, we have a guest here. But, I mean, it's like it's just you've got to take a step backwards to go six steps forward. I thought we so you've got to have people step. buying a product, affording to buy the product. I'll let go ahead. Before we go into our, our, our usual bickering as people who listen to our show regularly. <laughs> uh, I thought we were talking about unions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must be on the wrong show. Well, if 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 can I interject? Is that please, please go ahead. Um, CEOs make three hundred and sixty-four times the More. average workers' pay. It used to be forty, and if you look at other industrialized nations, it's closer to the forty, and it's nowhere near our U.S. number of three hundred and sixty-four times workers' pay. Over the last, uh, Karen's absolutely right. Wages have stagnated. And our economy stayed uh, at the progress it was making uh, because of borrowing. People borrowed on their house. People mortgaged themselves into debt. They borrowed on their credit cards. And that's not going to work with this next recovery. We're going to have to have a real recovery. And we're going to have to have an economy that works for everybody, not just the people at the top. And a way to help that happen is for workers to form together to have contracts so that they can have a share in the economic recovery. I can certainly understand that. And let me just sort of push back just a little bit on that because um, being one of the little guys, I'm more sympathetic towards that. But if, um, as far as the CEO's salary, I can see how that can seem outrageous, especially nowadays. But if one company, one guy, say Bill Gates, he's retired, supposedly, and uh, another company wants to hire him, and he says, you know, this is just my salary. And if you don't pay me, somebody else will. And he can only get as much as the next guy will pay. And if a company says, okay, we know the value that that bill is going to bring uh, to our company, you know, if I have to mortgage half the company off just to to hire him, I think it's worth the investment because I can see what he's going to bring me. I think I think we're past. I I really think that this is going to bring an end to that sort of way of looking at how to do business. You you think back to the robber baron era. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like when you've got dumb, okay, smart CEOs teaching dumb uh, board of directors to be uh, dumber than they are, okay, by doing stuff like that, you're right. They could say something, but you know what? Today, the board of directors say, I'm sorry, Charlie, I don't think anybody's going to pay you that much anymore. Let me ask you this. You you compare to um, athletes, football players, baseball players, they get extraordinary salaries. Only based based on performance. You don't perform, you're gone. That's the problem. We've been giving these guys, you know, golden parachutes even when they're dead. Their wives get golden parachutes even when they die. Steve wants a piece of that. Say something, Steve. Where were the board of directors? I mean, you're allowing these ridiculous... uh, uh, They are CEOs in their own companies. Not not all of them. And the board of directors, regardless of their CEOs or Martians, uh, they're charged with uh, looking out for the uh, protection of the shareholders and and the company. And yeah, but, but not, really, I mean, yeah. look at how many companies have gone bankrupt because of these CEOs, or well, gotten really gone belly up because of these CEO salaries. CEOs, I mean, I I think that I don't think that's fair. I don't think most of the companies go bankrupt because of the CEOs alone. I think there are lots of reasons. Just like there are lots of reasons for wages falling, real wages falling. I mean, it's a new world. It's a new economy. But we're we're really uh, strained, well off topic, and. And you have uh, meat here for at least another dozen shows. <laughs> listening to all this and um, wondering what you got yourself into. Yeah, we, we sort of diverged a little bit, which is you know par for the course on this show anyway. But just but to your point, it's getting back to the subject. Um, Steve was supposed to answer the question you had asked. Yeah. I can't even remember but. what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? We're almost out of time anyway. Nancy, do you have any closing arguments or closing statements you'd like to say before we close out the show? I, I just I, There was something I want to say. It's not really a closing statement. Is okay. that if you look at how an, an election for union representation really takes place, it's nothing like our political elections. The employer has total access. The employer controls the workplace. The employer controls this process. So to to pretend that somehow a secret ballot is this great democratic thing, take a look at the literature. Take a look at the reports, the research that's been done comparing this to international standards of democratic uh, uh, rights, and this is not what we have now. And so what what the Employee Free Choice Act attempts to do is to give back to workers the right to decide how they form their union and leave it up to the workers, not the companies. Very cool. Steve, well, you have something to say to that? Sure. The secret ballot of general elections would be just as flawed if they didn't have the protections that they do. And I think the answer is not to uh, throw out the secret ballot, which is the bastion of democracy, but instead to give it the same protection uh, that we give it in uh, in general elections. I think to throw it out uh, because of the lack of rules is throwing the proverbial baby out with the uh, bathwater. I'd also like, and I also think it denies the reality that both sides, union and employer, can be abusive in any situation if they're allowed to and if this statute is, uh, is aimed that way. And I think this statute overreaches. I'd also like to address one other thing very briefly. The act uh, as it is now mandates, I think it is after 90 days either side can call for a period of mediation and after that uh, call for a, um, a contract if one cannot be agreed upon by the parties to be mandated by the government, which I think is would probably be an end to life as we know it. I mean, having the government uh, uh, come up with the solutions and write contracts <laughs> at the post office is terrifying. 
Well, let me let me speak to that. The system we have right now actually incentivizes an employer not reaching an agreement, and that's why we have a 44% failure rate. Because after 12 months, if the employer strings out the bargaining, after 12 months, workers become frustrated. They become, uh, and and the employer can get rid of the union after 12 months. What the Employee Free Choice Act does is incentivize reaching an agreement, and in jurisdictions that have this sort of mediation arbitration process, it becomes the sort of the process of last resort, and you have between only like 10 and 20% of those disputes actually go through the process, and what you have is reaching agreements. It incentivizes the collective bargaining process, which is uh, the goal of the National Labor Relations Act is to allow employees to have an opportunity to bargain. To get their union is not what they, I mean, the point of having the union is to bargain a contract. And this incentivizes doing that. Well, sure, because you're holding a gun up to the head of the employer. But I mean, right now, there's no incentive. In fact, it incentivizes not reaching an agreement. And that's why 44% of the time, the act mm-hmm. fails workers. Yeah, right. because I mean, the, the the companies are holding guns to the employees' heads. Well, let's let's come up with a solution that actually works for both sides instead of trading a solution that works for the employers with a uh, with a solution that works only for the union. This is not a solution that works only for the union. The union also has to the the, the workers through their union also submit their dispute to arbitration if if it reaches that point. But what it does is get the parties to the bargaining table and have real bargaining. This is a process that's been in existence in a, in, in a number of countries. We do it in our public sector uh, collective bargaining relationships here in the United States. This also is is not something that's new and untried. Well, as you said, Steve, though, I mean. It has to still be voted on, I mean, and there's going to be obviously some changes along the process, oh, yeah. wouldn't it? I can't believe that this would go through the way it is. I'm, I'm, and you can see the lack of action. Uh, you know, I, obviously, granted, we have other problems right now. But, but there, I mean, there obviously needs to be something. And the act to me, personally, I look at it, and I'm closing with mine, was to say that I feel that the act, to me, it helps bring a balance to a, to a really very lopsided system right now where the employers really have too much power and that's my thoughts on that wow i see a lot of different viewpoints here i think it's i still think it's an imperfect system but we're all imperfect people um but we'll see what happens in the end um nancy schiffer steve markin karen matnan and myself jim stroud thank you guys for for uh listening in on the recruiters lounge i also thank our guests as well And until next time, um, we'll say bye-bye. Well, that's the end of our show, and as always, you've been a very great audience. If you like what you heard, love what you heard, or simply hate what you just heard, uh, please let us know. You can reach me, Jim Stroud, at jim at therecruiterslounge.com or karen at therecruiterslounge.com. Also, if you would, please uh, subscribe to us by iTunes or just subscribe to the site. Uh, of course, TheRecruitersLounge.com. The theme song of The Recruiters Lounge is courtesy of Brain Bucket and the Podsafe Music Network. Find them online at music.podshow.com. Alex Brook also appears courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network. And so this ends this edition of the Retro Lounge, home of classic episodes of the Recruiter's Lounge podcast. 
If you haven't already, uh, subscribe now so you don't miss a future episode. Okay, cool. Until next time, bye-bye. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.